It's time for the Little Agency That Roars podcast, a podcast that connects you with talented and brilliant people. And that's all of us. We are available wherever you stream your podcast, so go ahead and find us and subscribe. I'm your host, Michael Fasoni, and let's get started. All right. I'm sitting here with Hampton Stevens. Hi. Who we're going to call a freelance journalist. Yeah, writer, journalist, a lot of different things. Singer, bon vivant. Rock on tour, <laughs> ne'er do well. <laughs> Let's start with the journalism part. Let's do that. Um, introduce yourself a little bit for everyone listening. I'm a freelance writer. I've been doing it for uh, about 20 years as I've watched journalism crumble as an industry. I've written for local publications. I currently write for Kansas City Magazine. I've written for The Star. I've written for national publications, including ESPN and The Atlantic. And um, it's terrible. I recommend against it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't go, go into podcasting, kids. Are you being serious? Yeah, no. Yeah, but no. Let me, and I, I do want to get back to that, but. Sure. Um, tell me about writing, working and writing for The Atlantic and ESPN. Because well, that's, I mean, those are some. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, I think that the harder, it's harder to get the work than to do the work. Um, you know, you, you, you know I, I always say that you know you're getting old when younger people ask you, how do I get to be where you are? Like, it's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. And I had a kid once ask me how you write for The New Yorker. A little different, but also kind of similar milieu. And I said, well, step one is to be born into a wealthy East Coast family. Do that. Mm-hmm. Go to an elite prep school. Get into an Ivy League college as a legacy. You know, but so there are a lot of uh, uh, accoutrement of getting that work that doesn't really connect to the work. Uh, are, you know, like I never moved to uh, the Atlantic is based in D.C. I never moved to D.C. If I had moved to D.C., no, yeah, it's not cocktail parties. I used air quotes, but it's, you know, you network and you have lunches with people and that kind of stuff really makes a difference. And they do like it or not think of. Uh, Kansas City is flyover country. And, well, nothing that happens there could be relevant. And so if you're living there, how could you be relevant? So those kinds of things are difficult. But the actual getting the work is you just write for lesser publications, you know, get those clips and lesser publications and get those clips and use kind of each one of those gives a step up the ladder. Leverage each article to... Get yourself right. right to get yourself an next one, like you would write for a local publication, and then you would take that to a regional publication, and then you would and you pitch. You know, you you're almost writing the first part of the article when you pitch. You know, like you uh, there's an exhibit at the Nelson, and I think it's of national interest. So I would, you, you know, you might take three days to write the pitch letter, and. And the pitch letter contains a lot of the elements of what you're going to, not the poetic, you know, the rhythmic aspects of the writing, but it contains a lot of elements of what you're going to do, the themes that you're going to explore and what you'll say about them. So it's then the, then you, they, it's, it's a no business, you know, like they say no to a lot of stuff. And I was very lucky for a lot of years. I kept getting yes and yes and yes. And then eventually uh, maybe I aged out or maybe they with the Atlantic specifically maybe they just kind of drifted in a difference you know they did start to do a lot of Game of Thrones coverage you know and uh, they kind of drifted away from 
more cultural stuff. Some of it, if I'm being blunt, has to do with me being a white man of a certain age. And I can't really be mad about that. Like I want, you know, like I want women and people of different backgrounds to get opportunities. It does hurt me, but I still want that to happen. So, well, we cannot talk about that. So then you're yeah. saying that they had to um, diversify their staff. And I mean, you were I, th- a I mean, of that? this is just me spitballing, but I, I mean, I think that it's good that they diversified their staff. Sure, and I. And I, I think that disadvantaged me, but that's okay because right. I had a lot of, I've had a lot of advantage of being a white male, and so, right, you know, so okay, sure, yeah. I, I mean, I'm kind of for those other voices, and, but it's not just, you know, I should say that it's not just. Uh, I mean, there are different kinds of diversity. For example, you, um, I, we talked about the Midwest. It's like you, you would not have. If you only have New York voices in the room, if you only have DC voices in the room, you miss a lot. You know, like I used to cover NASCAR for ESPN. I know that crowd. And that that gives me access to a mindset that you don't get at a Georgetown cocktail party. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sorry to sound like, you know, like I'm I'm not. But there's other aspects of it, too, is that that it pays so badly that the people, like if you work for a magazine in New York City, like I mean, a Conde Nast, if you're up the ranks, okay, you might make pretty good money. But if you're not way up there and haven't been there for a while, you're probably not making enough money to live. You're getting money from home. And so you're coming from a particular background. And so, you know, you look at journalism, the kind of stereotypical fedora hat journalism in the 40s and 50s, it's a working class job. And there's there's much less of that now because there's because the hedge funds come in and take over the publications and so they make it it all goes to freelance and so only people who can afford to be freelance do it and that gives you a you know a certain perspective as well. Does that make sense? It, no, it does. But isn't that journalist also working three or four different stories or publications or freelance gigs so that they're not dependent on? You know, waiting tables or second job sure, or can, day but, job. Or, but I mean, look, it's a difficult. It's writing is hard, and it's difficult to do. And if and if I have a um, if I have a story that takes me a week, which is realistic, I'm working on a story now. It takes me a uh, <clears throat> excuse me for uh, it's about uh, KU and the the changes that are going on with the football team. You know, here and there, but it'll take me about a week to write it. If I get $1,000 to do that and I have to pay taxes and blah, 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 am I making good money? Eh, I'm making ish money, but it's okay. I, you get some prestige. You know, there's some perks. You get a tour mm. of the locker room or maybe a right. pass to the game. Right. Okay. You know, I've been to a lot of Super Bowls. That's a cool thing. If I get $250 for that week, guys, I'm out. <laughs> You know, I can't do this. And, like, whatever other task I'm working on, when the check comes, if it's three figures, you know, I, you got to have a side hustle. Mm-hmm. And it's not a side hustle. You know, writing for national and international p- p- publications is hard. It's really difficult to do. You're competing with people that have Ivy and Fulbright scholarships. And, you know, they have... And you'll, another thing you'll see is, like, it's a, they have people who they write for the imprintur of the... Uh, of the publication. That is, I was published in the Atlantic. Well, you're a professor at Harvard. You don't need the money. You're just writing because you can say you were published in the Atlantic. So that person has an advantage over me. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to pay my bills with it. 
So you're saying there really isn't almost time to do one job 100% and not have it affect anything else. It's hard. It's a, I mean, it's a hard, you know, it's a hard thing to do. Um, I mean, everybody who's written has faced a blank page. Now do that and you know that, like, you know, that 10,000 people in Cleveland are going to be picking apart what you say and, you know. Yeah, right. You know, it's a difficult thing to offer insight about a film or, or a record or, you know, a TV show, whatever it is. Give us some insight working for, you know, a large brand like The Atlantic or ESPN or some of the other, name one or two others. I know you've worked for others. Yeah. Barge, uh, what, if you want to. Sure. What insight would you like? Um What's it? Are the stories given to you? How much choice do you have, and what stories you get to cover? Half, how about half and half. Okay. Um, it's like somebody might say, uh, "Would you like to just literally? Would you like to do a story on this?" And then you might say, "Like oh, this is." I mean, I had one. Uh, I did a piece for Playboy at the website on Bo Burnham uh, earlier in his career, but it was literally like somebody's. I, I was like, "Who should I write on?" And somebody I knew said, check out this comic. And I said, whoa, <laughs> what's this guy doing? Mm-hmm. Turned out to be not my, maybe my favorite individual, but he sure is brilliant. <laughs> I mean, he didn't do anything unpleasant. It was just like, you you know, you get a sense of utility. There's a utilitarian nature. We are having this as you are a means to an end for me. When some people are actually just, Talking to you, or exploring, or taking the opportunity to use your question as an opportunity. You know, it chance. felt like you met Bowen in a defensive state. Not you, him, maybe. Um, and maybe he had five interviews that day. Maybe. I mean, I think he's just look. When you're that smart, you're used to being the smartest guy in the room. And and so I think that he's used to being the smartest guy in the room. And sometimes you meet another smart person, and they don't respond well to that vibe. And but I mean, I think that. Um, uh, you know, he had, especially his, before Inside, it's like, especially his earlier work, you'll notice there's a little bit of a sneer to it. He's a little mad in a way that, uh, you know, whatever, Robin Williams, Jim Gaffigan isn't mad. Gaffigan's got mad aside, but he's, you know, Burnham, Burnham has an edge, and I don't know what the source of that is, but, um, I mean, it. I, you know, he doesn't have to be my best friend, but... <laughs> Isn't that, though, where creativity is birthed? No. Can't it be? Can it it not be? I mean... I I mean, correct. That's not where it's birthed, Michael. But, I mean, isn't that where it can come from? Well, no. I I, I don't think those two are closely connected. I think that um, creativity is a difficult process. And uh, creative people can be sort of... uh, you sort of have to create... I mean, like, I'm singing now. And, and I find myself singing uh, all the things that would make fun of prima donnas. Like, oh, no, I need my tea to be just this blend and this temperature, and I have to have it, and I didn't get this. Like, because it is a really fragile thing. Okay, but isn't... Angst doesn't help... Angst doesn't spark creativity sometimes. Sometimes, sure. But I, I think that too often the difficulties of the creative process are used by people to be, uh, as an excuse to be uh, an asshole. 
Okay. Okay. I see. I, I can see where you're saying. I can uh, see why you would say it's that. Like art, being an artist it, doesn't give you a license to be a jerk in to this people uh, any more than being a plumber gives you a license. You know, jerk. Uh, but I think that there is certainly. Uh, yeah. I mean, to your point, I think there's certainly something that people who are unsettled and striving can often, you know, try to re- resolve that, address that. Through. It, because uh, I, I believe that personally. Um, I've also been listening and watching a lot of Rodney Mullen interviews. Um, if you know anyone knows who he is, he pretty much invented a lot of modern um, skateboarding, basically. Oh, okay. And you know he has some. He, he's a very passionate speaker, and I like listening to him speak. But he talks about you know creativity in, in his craft, and that you know it comes from a place of love that he can't explain, and that in that love there's hate, there's pain. That's what love is. Anyway, and I do want to get to your singing, but. I want to kind of oh, put that at the end. I don't care. That's fine. I care. Oh, thank you. I care. I mean, it's it's part of who you are, and it's part of becoming your brand. But I don't want to. Um, I appreciate again. That. I want to save that. So we've talked about the story. We've talked about interviewing them. So you get the story. It's fifty fifty. You said. You know, yeah, it's kind some, of fifty percent. Yeah, sometimes them, it's literally like you. sometimes it's literally like on a Bo Burnham love creative tangent there. Right, but that was an example of something where somebody literally said, "Look at this comic," and I said, "Oh wow, that guy's great because he is great." Yeah, he is. <laughs> He's super brilliant, and it's like, and it's like, and I just literally went to an editor and said, "Can I write about this guy?" And you always feel a lot of satisfaction when then that person. Uh, years later does something that captures the attention, then you just get to, like, you feel just this little bit of ownership. You know the show Community? The great show? I was, I think I was the first person to give Community national attention. Like, Harmon picked up my piece, and I got real embarrassingly slavish about it, but Harmon picked up my piece and, like, recommended it to people, and I think it might have been the first real prestigious national attention they got and I've always felt like I own community just a little bit you know? <laughs> just a little bit where it's like but it's like you know it's like anything it's like a young band or seeing a ball player it's like you know like whatever REM or U2 when they mm-hmm. were you know, just it's like no I knew they were going to be great it's like okay here's your prize you know but there is a lot of satisfaction in that but sometimes it's just as simple as you know the, the editor assigns you a story and sometimes to your question I hope it doesn't work like, I had an editor, I, I won't say who, who wanted me to write a story about uh, racism at NASCAR. And I went out to an event, because, I, like I said, I used to write about NASCAR a lot. I've been, been to Daytona, I've been to Talladega, blah, 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 blah. And um, I went out to an event, and I found whatever African-American folks I could and said, what is your experience? And they said, well, it, not bad. Like that, people are so interested in being evangelical for the sport, and I think interested in kind of performatively overcoming those stereotypes. That they was like, come, come on, have a beer, have some food, like mm-hmm. that. And then this guy, this one guy said, I'll never have said. He was like, now Fenway Park, that's a different story. <laughs> and the editors were like, well, that's not the story we wanted. It's like, well, that's that's what I got. So, you know, it didn't. That wasn't the story. That's like, what about the Confederate flag? And the guy was like, well, I don't really care about it. I care about it personally. Mm-hmm. I find it abhorrent. But, you know, you the story has to be what it is. So, yeah, it's an interesting process. So when you're working for major, major brands, Playboy, ESPN, Atlantic, how heavily edited is that first draft? Or does it vary from company to company, or does pretty much every large entity like that, because these are large global organizations, do they all have, and 
rightfully so, have to have intense layers of editing and, you know, content management. Um, what we, different dip- content management back then than today. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, well, I mean, le- less... It's less about the, the the nature of the brand than the nature of the. Uh, that's an interesting question, by the way. Then, then uh, first of all, if they have time, uh, because as it, so you could slide a story through simply based on deadline, because you know your editor or whoever the five. It six depends points. on how much the editor trusts you, but basically, just to kind of give you a, a you know a thirty thousand foot view, if it's online, it's going to be light. If it's published. In, in paper, there's a staff. Like, I published stuff... Still with, today? Still today. Well, I mean, I have a, a couple years, but yeah, yeah, a few years, but yeah. That that the the paper publications... the I was lucky enough to have fantastic editors at The Atlantic who would really work with me, and over the course of... I mean, it's funny, because you're asking me questions about a business that I've seen change in the last 10 years, I, so I can't right. really... I can't say, well, this is what it was like in 2010, but in 2015, it was this. Well, let's put a timestamp to it so everyone sure. listening, because I know you on a personal level. Um, when did you stop writing for um, the, the last piece I wrote for The last piece I wrote for The Atlantic was about the Royals winning the pennant, so 2014. Okay. And uh, what about your ESPN piece? Well, ESPN, uh, the magazine, they shut it down. So I don't know when the last... I actually couldn't tell you Didn't when the last one Didn't you write a piece in 2006, seven? I'm sure I did. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, lots of them. Um, okay. But I used to write for the website, and if any old, old school folks out there remember page two, I wrote for page two when I first started, and that was when I really thought maybe I could do this, because you were writing next to Frank DeFord and Hunter S. Thompson. It's like, oh, well, gee, maybe I'm, maybe I'm good at this, you know, Um that was that was the big leagues, but uh, again, it was like it's ESPN.com is you know it was back in the you know we were doing jokes about Ricky Williams and you know smoking weed and whatever it was, but it's like ESPN.com is turn this in now. ESPN the magazine was a four month process of submit a draft. We don't like this. We're going back. What about that comma on in paragraph three? Okay. I had a piece I wrote about Kansas City in the Atlantic. I think it was around the time the Kauffman Center opened. And I remember somebody called me on a Saturday, or it might have been an email, sending an email on a Saturday, and it was like, some of us have been talking about the comma in the second, <laughs> you know, in the second, whatever it was, the second sentence of the third paragraph. And you feel, as a writer, you feel, this is fantastic. Like, you know, I am I have a team of people who are helping me the best thing. And that's why, you know, like, that's that's great you have a sub stack but there's, this is, you know, where this is serious business. And if you can't do that serious business and you have done it, it just feels like, I don't want to write a sub stack. Like, what to tell people, whatever you believe is true, give me $5, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not the art of it. I mean, that's like, you know, the Beatles going, getting a home studio or whatever the analogy is. Like, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to the Beatles, but that support system was world class. And having that team of people, well, what about this idea? Could you clarify this more? Are you sure about that? Mm-hmm. It's an amazing gift. That's, I will always tell you that is the difference between an amateur and a professional. An amateur writer thinks, thinks what they do is great. Professionals are dying for an editor. Mm-hmm. I would love to have good editing. So, I mean, it's, so it is different, but I mean, there are still publications, rare publications, but who take that kind of care, but it's in paper, online, it's just, it's just free. I mean, you see, 
you know, yeah, I'll see typos or crappy sentences and stuff I read online all the time. And I won't say what publications, but th- publications where you think they should know better. Are you giving a second stab at it? Does your editor come back to you? Hey, here's what I've done. Here are the revisions. Here's what the boys up in corporate say. When it's done, are you okay with this? When it's done for a print publication, is that that is part of the process? Here's the draft. Here's the revision. Could you fix this? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And and that's a joy. As compared to sometimes you don't get that option. Submit the, submit the pros and run it. Like I, the like a lot of things I've done and do are you know just like like literally like I don't even get. I mean it's it's kind of a weird compliment because I want to turn in perfect pros, like literally not a, you know not a period out of place, and. So I'm thrilled when nobody wants to make any changes, but it's like it's literally like, hey, whatever happened to that piece on da 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 da? Oh, it ran in the October issue. Oh, it did. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> Glad you liked it, which is it's a tremendous compliment, but it's also like, okay, thanks for letting me know. I feel like online articles sometimes the masthead is more important than the article. Sure. Do you feel that way? Uh, well, yeah, but what do you mean? Um, if the headline is good, salacious, catchy enough, and it generates more clicks, the content of the article doesn't really matter. Oh, I'm sorry. Masthead is also, what it, it has a very specific meaning in publication. Apologies. It's okay. I just didn't know what you were saying quite exactly. Uh, that You mean the head, yeah. headline of the article. Right, right. I mean, that's Twitter, isn't it? I didn't read the article, but like maybe you should, maybe you should read it. <laughs> Like, just, that's all, just read it. Yeah, sure. But it, it, well, the funny thing is that uh, I don't, we don't write our own headlines. Newspapers, oh, magazines, never, ever. That's a completely different job because it has to, there's a lot of spacing involved. It's a, especially at newspapers, but magazines as well. It's a, it's a, it's a very specialized skill. And so it's like, this headline is misleading. And you'll just see the writer going like, I don't, I didn't write that. They don't write it. God, that makes perfect sense when you say that, but I would never have known. Right. Who does know? Is that something that... It's just a journalism thing. It's just funny. Like, like if if anything listeners could come away with is that your idea, uh, one's idea, the general public's idea of what journalism is, as you see it kind of filtered through people's understanding as they express it on social media, is insane. (laughs) Like, it's just insane. Like, well, you all got together and decided, like, no, that's not, nobody decided that. There's not a conspiracy to do that or anything. And people take their jobs pretty seriously and they try hard to be valid. Is that a separate job or is that combined with another job in a publication? Well, I don't work at a newspaper. I know that. But, I mean, I mean, so, but, but it's like, But like you said, that's not the job of the journalist to come up with the headline of the article. Right. No, that's a, it's a separate. Right. It's a different kind of editor. Yeah. Oh, it's, okay. a, it's, it's more about layout. I mean, it doesn't, I it. but I mean, it do, that doesn't mean that the person who does that won't also do some editing. Okay. But it's never, I okay. mean, I never, I don't think I ever wrote a headline. Well, I shouldn't say that, but like, you don't, you don't write those. Okay. Okay. So you've sort of touched on this a little bit, and now I want to get deeper into it because it does seem, you know, I knew you prior to 2008. I know you post-2008, and I know that industry journalism changed around that time period. Yeah. And it seems around that time period that um, you were very selective in what you wrote about 
or you almost got away from it as an art and or as a career. Um, I don't know. It seemed like part of that evolution or, you know, convergence, idea divergence, whatever journalism has done. Right. Has had an effect on you and the sure. way you're approaching it. Sure. I mean, I, I can only speak to myself personally, but there's sort of two things that came together at once. One is the changes in the industry that we've talked about, where it's like, you know, I had a friend, also a writer, who said, dude, if we were in the 70s, we'd have big houses in the suburbs. Like, you know, you're working at that level, but you're not getting remuneration for that level. And it's like, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bummer. Like I said, it's like, I just don't necessarily want to do this. Like, we have a, the story of, you know, someone who stops writing for newspapers or magazines and goes into PR. They're incredibly common because I, I'd like to eat. You know, mm-hmm. but there was also for me, and that's a real thing, and it, and it's a, been a strange thing to be. You know, my joke is that I'm a very, like a very good blacksmith in 1905. Like I'm very good at this, but nobody's paying for it. And when you click on that free story and you get mad about the paywall, that's that's money that you're not giving to me. You know, like how am I supposed to do it? I got to eat. And then so there's those changes, and it's and it was just strange to kind of be a part of that historical happening, that historical change that the internet and social media wrought. But also for me personally, I mean, just if you want to talk about creativity, is I have a joke, which is, um, uh, like, I have friends who are writers, like they were born in Tweed. And I'm really not, even though I'm reasonably accomplished, I'm really an artist, who, who decided to write. And, it, like, I'm a pretty good photographer, <laughs> you know, like, I'm a pretty good actor. But, like, you, and I, this was never a conscious thing for me, but say, so, like, you're in your, I mean, do you just mind if I ramble for a minute? Since, no, that, that, this is the point. What this is for, yeah. This is what the, it's So for. it's like, so it was never this clearly articulated until I thought about it years later. But it's like, so here I am, 15, 18, 25 growing up in Leawood, Kansas. And you think, well, you're a pretty good uh, singer. At that time, it was, it was rock music. Now it's more jazz. You're a pretty good singer. It's like, yeah, well, the problem is I'm not really desperate. And to be successful in the music industry, you kind of have to be desperate. you know. And I really like watching KU basketball with my friends or you know, sitting there while we're going to see whatever, right. And it, it kind of became clear to me. It's like, well, I would have to go to Los Angeles or New York at some point, you know, in my 20s, and I'm like, well, I didn't really want to do that. And uh, that's, a, I don't, that's a lot of work, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was the same sort of acting. Well, acting, it's in Los Angeles, New York, well, Chicago, maybe, if you're funny. Uh, London, well, I can't afford that, you know. Um, okay, it's like, well, I don't really want to go to photography to get up a studio. And I just kind of would, like, see something in the news and get mad, and I wrote a letter to the editor. <laughs> and they would, we had the star, and they ran it. Seriously? Yeah. And then I How would, old were you? Oh, this was my 20s. Okay. And then I would see something else, and I would write it, and I, they would, and they started, they would run everything I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and then it was like, this was when also like the Pitch Weekly was kind of a, a bigger deal right. in the 90s, uh-huh. right? And it was like, and uh, I knew a guy there who was an editor at the time, and he was like, I said, Hey, do you have any 
It's like, yeah, well, you could do this and you could write a book review. So I wrote a book review or two for them. And they said, oh, do you want to write this column? Try out for this column. It's like a humor column. It's called Intercourse. Yeah, okay. So I wrote a couple like auditions. They're like, yeah, you're writing this column now. <laughs> like, and, and it was uh, just sort of, that was, there I was. And it's like, so I just kind of kept doing that. I would submit things to people and then they would publish them. But like it was, and and eventually, and, and it's a it's a really beautiful art form, and it's incredibly challenging. I will tell anyone who listens, and a few who won't, that that the English language is the most subtle and sophisticated tool ever created for allowing one human being to communicate with another. It's a little bit of a takeoff of something Fitzgerald said about the novel, but that is what I believe. There is nothing. There is no better way for one mind to connect with another mind in the English language. It's incredibly challenging, and no one masters it. But other things are interesting, too. Stay right there. Yes, sir. Because about two weeks ago, you told me something. I like making good sentences. Yeah. So stay on that. Yeah, I, that, is, that is the part that I really... Well, the joke, there's a joke that no one enjoys writing. They just enjoy having written. But that well, is, I asked you that in relation to why are you so obsessed with Twitter, and you, you, that was your response. Oh, right. It was, look, I like making writing good sentences. Right. So go back to that nuance that, and that's, that you're – because I would be very curious to hear you unpack how English language is so amazing. Oh, those, those, that kind of construction is endlessly interesting to me. That will never be uninteresting. I mean, it's just the – Tell me about it. Talk more uh, about it because I don't disagree. I just want to hear it. Sure, I don't, sure. I would never artic- be able to t- articulate it. You know, I had and people, I wouldn't know to say anything like that. Um, I'm, not a, I'm a visual person, though. Right. No, it's funny because I've had people. It's really an oral medium, and I've had people ask this question. And and, and I, I this sounds cocky, but this is people who are genuinely. I mean, it's very flattering. They do this. They kind of look and go, "Well, how do you do that?" And I said, and I've said this to many people. It's like, but well, the first, the, the primary message of every form of communication is rhythmic, and I I believe that with photography, that you read a photograph in a rhythmic way. There's a there's a beat in your mind, and uh, when I am writing a thing, uh, a, a piece about sports will have a different. Fun- I know what the rhythm of the sentence is going to sound like before the sentences go in there. I know how it's going to feel. I know, you know, it's, it's just like whether it's a bossa nova or a rock beat. I, I know, and so all the, everything that I do is taking the message that I want to convey, but having it conform to that fundamental rhythm. Does that make sense? It does. And so that's the beauty of it. Is, and I and and humor, because I was going to say earlier, like one of my favorite. Uh, one of the things like that got me that original job at the pitch and that's helped me throughout my career is being funny. Remember, I had a girlfriend uh, who, uh, who said uh, I was writing this piece about martinis and I really wanted it to be thoughtful. And then I kind of ran out of time, so I just had to make it funny. And she was like, oh, poor Hampton has to resort to funny. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really, I mean, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back, but it was really flattering you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's hard to do for people. Uh-huh. And so one of the things about constructing those sentences is that the, it's the ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. You'll see this on social media. You'll see people who, are, who aren't good at it. And their version of that is 
they say a thing and then they end it with do your homework or get a clue or wake up, pal, or whatever it is. But it's generally three syllables, <laughs> but it has that kind of three syllable beat. And that's their version of I'm getting you with, they don't know they're doing it, but I'm getting you with the rhythm because they're not. They don't have rhythm. They don't. Well, they just, yeah, like that's not, no one has ever gone, do my homework. He's right. I need to do my homework. No one's ever done that. It's just that, but it's the wake up. It's the, the, the zinger kicker at the end is the cheapest kind of version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we talked about nuance. I had Dave Odegaard on here, who's an account executive at Lamar Outdoor, but he also um, owned Odegaard Outdoor and sold it to Lamar anyway. We talked about the outdoor medium and how it lives in nuance. The creative does, because it has to be so succinct. Right. And, I, and, I, and I'm guessing where you're going with that is there's a lot of nuance in Do Your Homework, Pal, or Wake Up, that you as a professional, that's where you come in. You unpack right. that nuance and make it a full-blown sentence that... Right. What's the line? It's like, I've, I, I've written you a long letter because I didn't have... I've written you a, a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one. But it's kind of almost the opposite of that. It's like, like let me explain to you what you're saying here. <laughs> you know, I've been dealing... I mean, bring up a sore subject, but the last few days, I, or a controversial subject, I wouldn't think that anti-Semitism would be controversial. I thought we were all against it. But at the time we're having this conversation is the Kanye West stuff. And uh, there's, oh, a, that's right. there's a lot of, uh, on Twitter, there's a lot of people going like, look at, that, look at this and look at these people and that. And it's just like over-representation. Like over-representation? What do you, what, people go out and get a good job? You're mad at them for that? What are you talking about? And so I've had to do some, like, it's very interesting to go with people to like, here's what you're actually saying. Like, if you actually pull this apart, here's what you're, like, and, and sometimes you can do that with people, you know, kind of through Socratic dialogue. Like, uh-huh, uh-huh, well, what, was that look, what would that look like? Do you think that there's, like, an email chain that everybody's talking to one another about, uh-huh, uh-huh? And, and um, I don't want to get too far afield, but it's, like, it's, it's really interesting when people, uh, kind of to your point, when they have their zapper, and you go like, yeah, that's a that's a great zapper. Anyway, da 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 da. Like, here's what's insane about what you've just said. I mean, I don't know. I don't like. I don't want to get into it. Specific, some of the specifics of it. Maybe I'll just ask you for your next question. <laughs> no, I like where you're going. I mean, you know, this is not a, a journalism podcast. This isn't really. An, this podcast doesn't have a theme. It's conversations with people who influence. Um, everyone's local ecosystem in some way or another, and you've done that. Well, I'll say this, and then we we definitely want to move on, but someone told me that Janet Yellen, who is the Secretary of Treasury, got her job because she's a member of the tribe. It's like Janet Yellen went to Brown, got a PhD from Yale, taught at the London School of Economics, Harvard, and Berkeley before working for the Federal Reserve. Maybe that had something to do with it. (laughs) I don't know. That could also be it. You know. Okay, let's talk about being a photographer. Okay. I know least about your photographies. Well... Did you do photography for Quixotic? I did. I took a lot of pictures for Quixotic. Was it go, Keep going. I mean, what would you, you like to know about that? Were you the that? exclusive Quixotic photographer? Was it just... Well, I kind of hung out with them a lot. My mom was actually uh, on the kind of a founding member of the board when Magliana was first at uh, Bernstein Rain. And so I 
uh, a kind of long time had some connections with them and had a lot of friendships with people in there. And um, I, I think I just sort of have an eye and I started taking pictures and I would give them some for social media. I mean, it certainly wasn't an official capacity. Well, it was I mean, kind of a semi-official capacity, I guess. But mostly it was just hanging out with some people who were friends at the time. Have you done gigs where you uh, are the photographer and the journalist? Yeah. Photojournalism. Yeah. Well, that photojournalism is I know, using... I know. Right. But have you done you know, full service where you take the photos, write the story? Yeah. Produce Yeah, that? I did do that. Yeah, I have done that, come to think is of that it. Yeah. Gra- is that... How is that different? Like, for me, that... Well... Go ahead. Oh, well, uh, I think I kind of... Back to your earlier question, which we got away from, about the, the, the art and the craft of writing... I just became less interested. I've just become less interested in it. I still do it for, for money and um, some pleasure. But, I mean, just to kind of give my standard story, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And so, like, I was doing uh, uh, film reviews or uh, theater reviews for The Star. And so you go to Starlight, you watch the play, you know, you take notes during the play. You come home, you know, maybe it's get there, get home at like 10, 10.30. You get something to eat, do whatever else you need to do to get yourself creative. And then by 11 o'clock, you're ready to write. And you got to turn in the piece at, you know, 6 a.m. It's hard. And there are just other things I like to do. So, um, you know, I just remember like staying up all night. I think it was an Atlantic piece, but like I had stayed up all night to hit my deadline. And, you know, I got old. You know, I'm not I'm not 25, and it was like it's like I don't want to I don't want to stay up all night. There was who was it? It was the music writer for the New Yorker. He said, you know, I don't I don't I don't want to stay up till three. I'm, I'm 55. I don't want to stay up till mm-hmm. three o'clock in the morning at the you know to get this. And um, so the 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 art itself became less interesting. So when I had opportunities to take the photographs, and I mean, there were, there was times, I did a story for ESPN. I went to, I went to outside Houston to cover a foot, uh, like a junior college football team that won a lot. And I don't know, the story was okay, but I spent a lot of time shooting video because I was just, as a human being and an artist, I was just really interested in video. And I was just doing that. And like, you know, and I turned in the piece, and then I came home, and I was like, oh, I was editing the video. This is great, and this edit will go right there, and that will go with the music. And, and like, oh, I'm just doing a whole different thing. So, like, the answer to your question is that, um, you know, it was very, it was more gratifying to take the pictures than it was to write the stories, usually, because I, I just got really interested in photography. And so that was what was capturing my brain as a creative person. It's like, oh, I had to do the writing. But yeah. when did you start photography? Well, I mean, really, it was when self when when cell phones got good. You know, when the when the cameras on. So that recent. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I the only visual arts thing I had like I I painted some in high school. I won a prize for a painting in high school. But like I did some painting in college too. But no, I mean, when I was writing from about. You know, 30 to, there was probably 15 years, 45. I mean, I was just a massive workaholic because there's no, you don't master writing. You don't master the English language unless you're Shakespeare. And even then. It's like advertising. You just, it's, I mean, like kind of anything. Like, you know, you can, right. It's like when you see a baseball player, they're always working on their swing. Mm. Oh, they're always doing this. Golfer. There's no done with your swing. And, um, 
so I just didn't do anything else, including have a personal life. <laughs> but, you know, I, but I mean, I would just get, I, mean, I remember people had something that I worked a 12 hour day. It's like a 12 hour day. What are you slacking? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I got up in the morning and I sat at my desk and then maybe I'd get something to eat at four and then I'd sit at my desk and then I'd go to bed at three in the morning. Like, what, what are you talking about? But, um, so the photography really came like this, like when cell phone cameras got good and I would like, be standing next to someone, I would take a picture, and they would go, oh, that's good. Same thing. Like, you know, you, you learn. But you shot or shoot with an actual, you don't shoot. Well, okay. right. So and then graduated. I, right. And then okay. I, yeah, I graduated. Okay. And then I got a camera, okay. and it was okay. like, you know, it's funny, because the thing about photography. Tell me. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll just say this, is there are, um, like, there is no piece of equipment that you can buy that will make you a better writer. Like, it doesn't matter how fast your computer is or how fancy the word processor program. Fundamentally, I mean, okay, I'll catch your errors. Yeah. But fundamentally, if you don't have anything to say, the computer ain't going to say it for you. Yeah, I'm into cycling, and, and I have a uh, – anyway, I love my bike. And a lot of people say, oh, man, does that go fast? And my response is, well, it goes as fast as you pedal As it. you pedal it, <laughs> it right. This doesn't go any faster right. than a 20-pound Schwinn. Right, there's not a – It weighs three pounds, but, you know <laughs> – Gravity is still in effect. Inertia still exists. And so... It's the, Jack White, um, there's a documentary called, I think it's called... It's going to um, get loud. Thank you. So you've seen the intro. He makes a guitar out of a two-by-four and a telephone pole. No. Like semiconductor no, and a but wire. that's funny. And plays it, you know. Right. Anyway. Um, well, but just, I mean, to the point about photography... That, that is not the case. There is... Oh, that's right. You were going to tell us the thing about photography. Right. Hanson, tell us the thing about photography. Well, there, it's like there's no, equipment, the there's no equipment that will make you a better writer. Right. There is equipment that will make you a better photographer. <laughs> like, right away. Like, my first camera was, like, this kind of... God, I hope you get a lot of emails now from that. Yeah. Crappy. <laughs> it's true. You know, like... The, What's your Twitter handle? <laughs> it's just my name. <laughs> I don't want anyone to contact me ever. Don't contact me for any reason, ever. I'm going to change the subject, unless you want to stay there. I don't think it's. A, it's I don't think it's a controversial thing. For no, it's not. Photographers, just, yeah. But it's like. But it is. But it's like. Like I got this I kind of. Joking. I got this like Hyundai version of a camera, and then I got whatever <laughs> brand it was. You know, Kodak brand cameras or something. Now Hyundai's going to email them. And it's like okay, that's fine. And then it was like. Then I got. I I got a Sony NEX. And I was like, oh, I'm a better photographer now. Gotcha. <laughs> right. All right. All like, right. oh, I, got, I suddenly got better at this. Now, it won't give you an eye, but it's like, right. it is like, oh, the quality of this is much nicer. Right. No, but, no, no doubt they're doing a lot more than. But I think to kind of, uh, kind of round it out, um, what I think is interesting is what happened to me was, um, well, but what, <laughs> is that, um, the, you know, the, uh, did you remember the movie Hope Floats? Is that a Sandra Bullock? Sandra movie? Bullock. I forget. It was like the director was somebody who went on to do good stuff. Anyway, there was this. Well, she goes home. Yeah, she goes home. She's very charming. Coming Harry Connick Jr., I think, is in it. But there's this line from the movie. She sees his house and it's beautiful, and he's a genius carpenter, the character uh-huh. or something. And she goes like, "I can't believe you don't make money from this." And he goes, um, yeah, that's the American way, isn't it? Take something you love, twist it around to figure out a way to make money from it, and then suck all the joy out of it. <laughs> and I really, like, I really didn't want that to happen with photography. Like, I just like it. I really, like, I'd be happy to shoot you. I'd be happy to shoot you. And it's like, I really like the, the process of it. And I, and I just noticed this thing. 
you know, that happened with writing or that happens with all this stuff is you say, well, well, how can I warp this? How can I instrumentalize this? And how can I monetize this? I mean, even the word monetize, like, where did that come from? And, um, you know, I really, I just really didn't want to do that. And so, you know, like I, like I say, I have this, this, th- this project that I'm working now, and I want to provide them with some pictures, and they want to give me some money. But I don't want it, you know, and that's great. I'm going to use that money to pay my bills and to eat food. But, like, I don't want it to, I didn't want what happened to writing with me have that happen uh, with photography. You're a very guarded artist. It'll just... You're I, very defensive. I just want to keep some joy, you know? You're a real artist. You're a true artist. I think. That's what I've... Uh, you um, know, you are, you are who the world tells you you are. You're also an intellectual, I think. Um, and you're, uh, you, have a good, you have a good beat, and maybe this has to do with your age on, you know, I think a lot of different generations. So I want to ask you this question. Um, what is today's counterculture? Do we have one? I would love to find it. Yeah, I, 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 where you can't find it because they're not online. You mean they are online? No, because they're, that's, the count, that's the nature of the counterculture. They're not online. Where are they? What is it? Living life. Like, it's, it's the person who go, when you, when you, you know when you go uh, to the restaurant and you can see, we used to, I used to do a thing, it was like a, you know like punch buggy? You ever play punch buggy when you were a kid? No. You're dr- Punch buggy. You're driving in a car, and anytime you'd see a VW bug, you're just a whatever. Oh, okay, sure. All right, great. We did a thing. It was like selfie punch. It's like go to a concert, and whenever you see people doing this, do a selfie punch, you'll get a sore arm from the punches. There's a lot of it. And so think when you go to a restaurant, every time you see someone take pictures of their food, you know that one person over in the corner who doesn't take pictures of their food? They're just in the moment. Me? That's the counterculture. That the counterculture is refusing to participate. You know, uh, my niece. That, that, that doesn't even register as a culture to me. You're, I mean, it's my interaction with the technology. You're saying is. Yes. Go ahead. Well, my niece asked me once. She was teasing me, but she goes, "What was it like to grow up without cell phones?" And uh, you know, in the '90s, and it's like, yeah, the '90s, so long ago. And it was like, um, you know, the, I mean, the the first, the true response is, well, you don't know because nobody walks around thinking about the technology you don't have. There is, you know, like you and I don't go like, this is weird to not have transporter beams. Like we don't, you know, like we're just getting uh-huh. in the car and driving to the thing. But, you know, the truer answer is, uh, I remember very distinctly, I would just go, go to places and do things. And I didn't perform them for an unseen audience. You know, I, I, like you say, I fight on Twitter a lot, but I got off Facebook and I don't post to Instagram anymore. And it took me, when I stopped posting to Instagram, it took me three or four months of having beautiful plates of food set in front of me to stop. Now, I still send them to friends. Like I have a friend who's a foodie and, you know, he went to a Laotian restaurant and he goes, look at this. And I go, oh, look at that. But that's a different, that's, I'm sharing my experience with you individually. I'm not performing this for an audience. You know, what, uh, what happened? Hold on, go ahead. No, well, what happened in 2008? 2008 is, was, was the watershed year. And that was the year that Facebook went, that your mom got on Facebook. 
And if you look at what happened to the culture, because you ask about the counterculture, that was the moment when you got uh, The Office, Parks and Recreation, Modern Family. You started to get this whole spate of shows, uh, people breaking the fourth wall. And that Fleabag was the, is the best example. What's the fourth wall? Looking at the camera and talking, addressing the camera. Oh, oh okay. Fleabag okay. is the Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Is the perfect example of that. Fleabag, she, you're really participating this with her. She goes like that, and then it goes back to the scene. And the hot priest is the only one who can see that she does that. If you've seen Fleabag, but what that is is there is that you, we have uh, this. The, we have the invisible audience. I call it the intimate stranger. And so we're all playing this invisible. And you know, 200 years ago, it might have been your idea of God, that what you're doing alone in your house, that you're being watched and listened to, and you're performing that for you have this intimate stranger. But now it's like this combination of like your friends and your crush, and you hope your crush sees your story. That literally, lunch has become a performance. Look at I look. It's the best sandwich ever. Is it? Is it is it is, is that the best sandwich ever, or is it just a fine sandwich? Like, does, like sandwich. the enormous pressure that we put on ourselves to like I I not only do I, am I do I have to look cool and look and I have all these cool friends, I have to have the best day ever every freaking day. I am exhausted by that, and I don't I stop doing it. And when you talk about being care for protecting yourself. That's what I'm doing. So when you ask me about a counterculture, the, all, the first thought that comes to my mind is someone who does not participate in that. That I, I do not need you to uh, see me going to Worlds of Fun. I do not need you to know that I went to the Royals game. I do not need you to know that because I am having the experience of being at the game as opposed to performing that experience for this kind of unseen audience beyond the fourth wall. It seems that tech and the data universe was part of counterculture. Along, used to be. Uh, along with extreme opposites like the punk, the goth, the grunge. You know, Kansas City, I know, prior to the pandemic, had a, a decent underground punk and uh, hip-hop scene, very independent. Um, uh, anyway. No, but you're absolutely right. But when the, I say culture, and I don't mean to interrupt, when I say culture... I refer to something visible, and I don't think that a passive pushback against my use of technology is a visible display of culture. Okay, I can answer that question for you. Uh, there was a, a book, I think it came out in the late 70s, early 80s, called The Third Wave, and uh, by this futurist named Alvin Toffler. And what, what he said was is that um, human civilization, that, that, like, that the first wave of civilization was agriculture. And the second wave of human civilization was industry. And so the industrial mindset became everywhere. The Model T, the Pringles can, you can buy Pringles in New York, take it to LA, it'll fit in the same can. That that kind of standardization, and that we, as people who grew up in the industrial era and immediate post-industrial era, became used to believing that that is uh, what civilization looks like. And so you would have the Beatles, you would have, uh, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments movie, whatever it is. But you would have these mass cultural events because it was essentially, in the United States, for example, a monoculture. 
The third wave doesn't work like that. The third wave is flex time. The third wave is telecommuting. The third wave is a million different subcultures. And so the reason there's not a counter, and that's where we are. That's what we're entering into, what we've been entering into for the last 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, Toffler wrote it in the late 70s. And so the answer to your question is the counterculture is a million tiny different little subcultures. Because you're never, you're not going to have, here's the counterculture and here's the hippie movement. Here's the baby boomers and here's the punk rock. It's like, you know, one of the interesting things about the internet is that the internet not only destroyed place, but time in terms of culture. And let me explain what I mean. For the, uh, for most of recorded human history, in terms of music, you would have, eh, it's a slight exaggeration, but like you think about cities and music. You had the scene in Vienna. You had the scene in London. You had the scene in Liverpool. All these bands. Kansas City. Working together. Kansas City Nashville, is a Detroit. perfect example. Yeah. Motown. Yeah, exactly. Right. Memphis. Mm-hmm. And so you had New Orleans. Los Angeles. New Orleans, Los Angeles, obviously San Francisco oh God, yeah. being the classic of the late 60s. So you have all these bands and artists working together and listening to each other, influencing each other. Well, right? Not just jazz. Let's not discount, you know. Punk. No, I'm talking about anything. The Stooges. Absolutely. Know. Right. Manchester in the 80s. and Right. 100%. And what happened with the internet was two things. Is one, it became non-local. Ironically enough, Seattle, where Microsoft is, was one of the last s- geographic scenes. Because all those guys were, and girls were, you know, women were hanging out with each other and okay. listening to each other and influencing each other. Okay. Once you could get it, whatever you wanted on YouTube, I might live in Seattle. I don't need to go to listen to grunge. I can listen to world music or this from London or reggae or whatever it is from all around the world. And so the, the geographic scene blew up and the linear time scene also blew up. When you and I were growing up, you would have the oldie station. You had a classic rock station. Right? You had pop, you had some country, but it was pretty clearly delineated. And you got what you got. And then maybe you went to the record store or whatever. That doesn't work like that anymore. These, kid, these Zoomer kids, they know Sinatra because they can. It's not just what's for, they can go get whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So you'll see these kids who it's like, you know, who they might like, I, like I'm not, I don't even know who's popular right now. Like I couldn't say whatever it is, 21 Pilots. I've told you for three months to listen to the new Taylor Swift albums. Right, right. I've been telling you. Right, or whatever it is. But I mean, it's like, but it might be, you know, Taylor Swift and Billie Holiday, or it might be, you know, uh, Kendrick Lamar and Beethoven. Like they're not genre specific because they're not temporally specific and they're not geographically specific. So if you think about that, I want to hear that new Kendrick Lamar. All across the entire culture, that your <clears throat> answer is that it's the, the fracturing itself is the counterculture. Has counterculture moved into politics? It's become a lot of politics. <sighs> now that I, now that we're talking about, it, I'm listening to, listening to you talk about it. <clears throat> Um, there's more counterculture in politics, I guess is what I'm saying, than there is outside of it. Uh, well, expand on that a little bit. Oh, gosh. Can you give me one example? Sure. You have, what, these different, all these different factions, Republicans, Democrats, then you have spinoffs from within and divisions from within, whether it's the Proud Boys or the, um, the what's the other group, and then there's, you know, uh, QAnon, and then... Um, 
I think it's interesting, yeah. You have the counterculture on, on the other side, too. You know, I'm not trying to be partisan, but, you know, the other side with um, some more of the extreme liberal Democrats who are, you know, trying to be super vocal on certain liberal issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I, I used to, actually, I used to write for Greg Gutfeld, weirdly. He had a late night show. And he had these kind of, I, I used to kind of write lines for him. And Really? Yeah. On what show? Red Eye. What was that on? Fox News Late Night. But it, it's a, it was a, he was a different guy. <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know. And it was like, and, but, but Gutfeld is someone who, who will tell you that, you know, Republicans today are the new punks. Kind of to your point. To what? Say that again? Republicans today are the new punk. He's a, he oh, are the new punk. New, okay, new punk gotcha, rockers. Gotcha. And it's like, and um, my response to that is, no, they're not. <laughs> like, that's not, like, and so there's a, like, the idea is being that anything that kind of goes against whatever a, a dominant cultural theme is, is sort of inherently countercultural. But really, I mean, if you're supporting, like, your tax cuts for the wealthy is not punk, Greg. I don't, you know, like, there's no, <laughs> I don't know, like, but we're the real rebels, are you? Are you, is that is that what's rebellious? Yeah, and maybe you know part of it too is what was considered counterculture is now completely accepted in society. Yeah, and I, I think that has to do a lot. You with better it. believe it. I think a hundred percent, and I think that that's mostly that's to the good. It's like you know people assume that the good things were just kind of going to happen. Like here's an idea: women should be liberated. Gee. <laughs> Gee, what you know? Well, what a radical idea! But there was a time when it was a radical idea, and you still have these proud boy, you know, far right trad people, whatever they are, who like you know think the sexual revolution was a bad idea. It's like, well, I guess if you're a little baby and you want to live in a crib and you want to oppress half oppress half the population, but no, it's just in economic terms. Like, no, it's a good idea to liberate women. Like, you look at societies all around the world. You know what makes you wealthy? Liberate people, particularly women. It's not hard. It's not complicated. People should be free. Are there some drawbacks that come with that? Yeah, when people are free, they sometimes do stuff. <laughs> okay. I'm willing to live with that. But it's interesting that, that so much of what uh, would have been considered radical countercultural in the 1960s, it's just, I mean, like, you know, a woman can get a credit card. You know, like this, I mean, like Mary Tyler Moore well, was a like, radical show. Boil it down to something, even, uh, you know, tattoos and long hair. You know, there's something that oh. has come a long way in just the past few years, you know, in terms of the workplace even. Um, and isn't that a relief? Yeah, no, like you said, to, to the benefit. Isn't that a relief? Um, like, I just don't care. I don't know why you should be uncomfortable. I don't want you to, I don't, you know, now look, if you're at a funeral, I understand you wear a suit to show a certain level of respect if you're in federal court there are areas where that's appropriate and still in the office like you know you don't want to, you're not coming in shorts and flip-flops you want to look nice but generally speaking like I'm in favor of these things and and frankly I think people should speak up about that more um, you know there's a real we I guess like you say we don't want to be too political but there's a real reactionary movement happening in this country. And uh, it's bad. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, it's bad when people are politically reactionary. And I, I, I think that, uh, I don't know, there was this 
op-ed in the New York Times recently, where it just said that you know that progressives particularly need to uh, reclaim patriotism, essentially. Like I'm tired of letting one side of this political spectrum wave, you know, wrap themselves in the flag and pretend that they're the patriots. I'm just not. I mean, do you mind if I say something political on this podcast? You can. You this is. You can say whatever you want. I. Yeah, I mean, this is well. You know, if you're making excuses for somebody who tried to uh, overthrow the will of the people and stay in office, you're not a patriot. I don't care how many flag emojis you have on your profile. Like that's. I don't think you know. So that's your personal view. Yeah, and you're entitled to that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm entitled to that because also patriot. But it's like you know, it was it was funny. Like I saw this thing the other day. Uh, It was. It was mediate. I think it was. I think it was on Gutfeld's show actually. But the woman was saying that, like, you know, oh, a lot of woke stuff from the left can be alienating. And it was like, well, yes, that's certainly true. A lot of woke stuff can be. Even Obama said as much. You know, it can be kind of prissy and alienating. It's like you know that thing where you say that I hate America and want to destroy the country, and I'm not a real American. I find that alienating too. Please stop saying those things to me. And I'm just not willing to listen to it anymore. Like, no, I'm, I'm patriot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, political diatribe. No, that's fine. This is your time. I mean, you can talk about whatever you want. But you got questions written down that piece of paper. So let's get to the next one. <laughs> um, I've come out with a radical lefty statement that coups are bad. <laughs> we urge you. We should follow the, out, what, how, the election outcome. <laughs> that's what we should do. So I'm going to... Turn the conversation. Unless you want to stay here, I'm going to turn the conversation. Democracy is good. It's up to you. Radical statement. Okay, I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn the conversation there because um, this is not a political theme podcast. And um, hit me. A few years ago, you did something that I I think is pretty cool. Is you not only completely changed directions, but you made a firm commitment to yourself and stuck to it the same way someone has to do when they quit smoking cigarettes, which I think you've done. I did. Um, uh, or start exercising or start a new career or whatever it is, have children. It's not, I don't know. But you decided you were going to start singing. Yeah. And you had a goal in mind. And, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, we've all have people in our lives. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start baking more. I'm going to start working out more. I'm going to get into cycling and they buy the gear and then they never ride the bike. You know, whatever it is. Uh Okay. You did the damn thing. Yes. You're keeping me from practice right now. You did the damn. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You said it. I kind of smirked when you said it. Did you now? Well, come on. I don't know you as a singer. Fair enough. I've known you for a long time. You know, you're my buddy. We, we hang out. We party. I know you're a journalist. I know you're right. a photographer. And he told me you're going to start singing. Yes, sir. With the goal to perform at uh, Kaufman. I'm like, okay. I like, One of many. I like Carnegie it. Hall, I Saturday like, Night Live, you name it. I like your style. But you did it. You stuck to it. You practiced every day. Um, you know, what, this started during quarantine. Is that right? A little bit before, actually. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I started, I started taking lessons. And uh, then practicing every day, and then I was kind of getting ready to have a little uh, house concert soft opening performance, and it was scheduled for March 20th, 2020. So, oops. But as it turned out, it was uh, it was kind of amazing because 
Like, I took quarantine very seriously and for a long time. Yes, you did. More seriously than most. <laughs> I wrote about that in KC Magazine. That's right. Yeah, I wrote a That's big right. long essay. But I was, so, you know, I was absolutely alone, alone, haven't unpacked that trauma. But I was really alone for, what, 18 months, 16 months, something like that. Too long. Too long. And, um, yeah, no. But, um, you know, that I really had that opportunity to, it's like, Every day, practice for two, three hours. And you still do three hours a day? Uh, well, I have, I've had a little voice train lately, but that's my goal. And I'm working on a Christmas set, uh-huh. which is funny because uh, it's the difference between, oh, you know the song White Christmas? And you're going to perform the song White Christmas for people, which is different. Because then it's like, you know, it's not just, uh, it's not karaoke. You know, like you really need to know exactly what you're going to do, where you're going to do it, and you breathe here, and oh, I'll put a little flutter in here, and I'll go in a falsetto. And you here. started on your own, or did you start with a coach? I started taking voice lessons, and um, it was really, really productive. And then I kind of, it's funny, for about the first maybe eight weeks, I sort of would go and get my lesson and go, this is great. And then I'd go home. And watch TV and do whatever I was doing. And then I go to my lesson next week, and then I said, "What? This isn't. This ain't it, pal. This ain't. This ain't the road to greatness. This is nothing." And I started saying, I started practicing, literally just like singing into a plastic bottle, uh, so I could hear myself, kind of as a you know acoustic chamber. Okay. And like I just would do that for you know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, and I was really tired. And then, oh, you know, okay, now I can do two hours. Okay, now I can do three hours. And over the course of months and months and months, I was able to, you know, develop a lot more vocal capacity, you know, where it's like you can actually, I mean, some a lot of it's just like how it sounds and how it feels, but there are, you know, there are measurables where you can go like, wow, I, I, I couldn't hold that note for very long six months ago. Now I can hold it. So that feels really good. I imagine a lot of, I imagine some people who are hearing this who know you maybe don't know this about you. They will. How does that feel? Is it scary? Uh, to well, come out with a new to come out with this new skill set, this new endeavor, this new craft. No. No. Uh, <clears throat> Especially since it's so vulnerable. I mean, writing, you know, it's black and white. You hide behind the page. If yeah. You, I could say that if I wanted to. You're, you're not in front of people. But this, there's no hiding. Well, it wasn't scary Unless until now. That, Mike, that, now I'm scared. What's the female singer that wears the mask? Sia? There you go. Not wears a mask, but she wears her yeah, hair. Yeah, covers her face. Anyway. Um, well, it wasn't scary, but now it is. So thank you for that. <laughs> Appreciate that. No, I mean, okay. I mean, sure. But, uh, I mean, it's certainly nerve-wracking to perform for people and I think it kind of always is and always should be you know everybody says that if you're not at least a little nervous you know that kind of thing oh yeah I believe that but not I mean not really because it's more like uh it's just another thing that I can do and I've always loved doing and so I mean, people who know me really well know that I won't shut, stop singing anyway like just in the car da 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 you know I'm like, that's so like, yeah, good. He's finally going to get it out of his system. But no, not really. I mean, uh, uh, it, it doesn't feel like, like I said, you know, like I, I don't think of myself as, oh, I'm a writer. Like I never did. It's, a, it's any more than I thought of myself as a photographer. I think I used to have a bio on Instagram. I might still be there. Like I said, I don't print, post there anymore. But it's, uh, you know, like I'm a 
writer, I'm a writer who sings or a photographer who write and acts. I'm like, sure, yeah. yeah, no, so, right. so no, like, I really want people to, I mean, the hard, the hard thing about it for me is, um, showing off. Like, this, this will sound really weird, but it's like, okay, there's this uh, classic Seinfeld exchange where uh, Elaine is having a problem with the Jay Peterman catalog, and Jerry says, well, you're a writer. Make something up. Pe- people love interesting writing. And she goes, that's right. Whatever the line is, she goes, that's right. People love interesting writing. And Jerry, like, rolls his eyes, like, yes, they also like sunshine and puppies. You know, and so it's hard for me to go, like, why would someone want to listen to me? sing Christmas songs for an hour. It's like, because they like music. (laughs) People like, and and part of that has to do with writing, which we didn't really get into, but part of what happened with me as a writer, especially in terms of being an entertainment critic, is that I, in addition to sucking the joy out of the writing process, sucked the joy out of the entertainment that I was experiencing. I remember going to a movie once, and I, I walked out of the movie, and the guy I was with turned to me, and he says, like, you just started writing your review, didn't you? I said, brother, I started writing a review the minute the lights went down. Right. Like, I don't, and so it's a weird thing. So I'm going to concerts. Well, if I'm in the pit, in the photography pit, I'm, I'm looking at the concert. Oh, they did that thing with the lighting and da-da-da. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm an old jaded man. I'm not lost and abandoned in the magic of the music anymore. Once in a while. You know, I'll get kind of like, if someone's really outstanding, but I'm still dissecting it like a critic. And so it's hard for me to realize that not everybody thinks like that. Like, no, dude, they just want to hear, they just like that song. So where do you sit in the audience? Well, let's see, the last show I went to was, uh, uh, oh gosh, I can't, now I can't remember the name of it. Uh, that band in D.C., I'm drawing a blank. Oh, uh not Sophie Hawk. No, that um, beautiful singer. Uh, oh, this is so terrible. I, can we? It's, it's on the tip. You texted me. You were going. To, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it, uh, no. Washington D.C. Anyway. Uh, oh gosh, I have to look up on my phone. Uh, what is the concert that I saw in Washington D.C. last month? It's not going to tell me. I was. Why you say? Why you? Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, but like, I, but I mean, if I'm not privileged, this is really embarrassing that I cannot remember this woman's name. She's one of the best singers in the world. Uh, the um, if I'm not privileged, I'm so used to going shows with uh, with privilege, like with a media pass, that if I'm not, I'm not going to fight my way towards the front. You know, so I just kind of stand in the back and see if I can find a place where the sound is good. Gotcha. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to have any kind of, you know, special experience. I'm afraid we're not going to have to, uh, we're, we're not, we're not going to leave this until I. <laughs> Didn't you go to a show in Nashville or Ohio? Oh, I went to see Phoebe Bridgers. That's it. Phoebe. Yeah, that was different. Yeah. In Ohio, right? Lake Street Dive. Lake Street Dive. Woo! Right, she, and I, now I can't remember the, the singer's name, but she's literally one of the best on the planet. But yeah, I went to see Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers might have been it for me in terms of concerts where you have to stand up. It was outside, so a little safer venue, but it was kind of on asphalt and she's on a stage, and it's like, yep, yeah, I am old. I want to sit down. Oh. 
Uh-huh. Anyway. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah. I'm really <laughs> mad that I cannot remember this woman's name, but that's what happens when you have a microphone in front of you. But um, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process to be, to sort of um, take yourself out of it. Thank you. Her name is Rachel Price. She does a version of The Very Thought of You with John Batiste. That is one of the prettiest things you'll ever hear. I, li- I literally heard that and said, that's the singing that I want to do. Rachel, yeah, Rachel. Okay. Yeah, she's terrific. And the other musicians are great, but, you know, like I would say, there's a lot of 10,000 maniacs. There's a lot of maniacs. It's hard to find an <laughs> Natalie Merchant. There's no 10,000 maniacs without her, though, right? Right. And they, they replaced her. Like, they got another oh, they singer. Yeah, and they've been touring. But it's, I remember it was them. When was that? Of years ago. But they, it kind of looks a little bit like her, too. But, they, but it was funny because it was like somebody they went on. It's kind of like the American Idol theory. But it was like they went on. It was like them, like somebody like Stuart Copeland, Wait, and something what's like the that. American Idol theory. Uh, that you, basically, you don't, you don't get first. We're going to conduct this nationwide search for a star, and like, yeah, once in a while you'll get a Kelly Clarkson or a Jennifer Hudson. But the the idea is that you know, there's a like Jim Morrison ain't going on American Idol, like. Someone who's really has gravitas as a performer isn't going to go stand in line for Simon Cowell or whatever it is. Like that's not why. Why? Why? Wait. Why do you say that? I disagree. It's because it's cheesy. We could go another hour. I think right now, very easily, just on that because I disagree ten thousand percent. Oh, it's super cheese. Okay, hold on a second. You're it's cheesy, Hampton. But hold on, you live in Kansas City, Missouri. Like you, like you, you've said three times, I think, on this podcast that we're a flyover state. What if you don't have the means to make? Well, to, I don't think we're a flyover well, state. <laughs> well, no, but the people who employ these large, right? These large artists who work for record labels, he, these young artists want their to have their demos heard by. Yeah, that's what they call us. Okay, and I, I think that person. What if that's their only opportunity to be seen? Is to wait in line for four days at Bartle Hall so they can maybe shake Katy Perry's hand and maybe sing a verse for her? Ugh. What's your question? Ugh. I think no matter how the guy, I'm I in, think if you gravitas or the artist that I'm interested in is the one that goes. I'm not waiting in line. I'm not standing waiting in line so I can kiss Katy Perry's ass. Well, I disagree. That. They that's that's first of all that it's always this same kind of big Broadway soul kind of performance like they always okay that aside okay who they pick as a winner aside the platform and the type of human who does that I totally disagree because the artist wants his art to be heard there's a jillion different platforms you can no there's not there's TikTok there's YouTube there's a million ways to get yourself heard you don't have to go line up for that stuff but that's that's like saying that any, any here's what I'm saying that's like saying any young girl under the age of 25 can be an Instagram model and that's just not true here's what I'm saying and so and no not not take, everyone with a smartphone and a good computer in their parents house can get their demo heard by their band or their solo recording or their violin or their piano recital or whatever it is here's what I will say to you that's fine if you if you want to think that God bless you okay I mean, you're not okay. wrong, but 
I will tell you that the artist I am interested in does not get up in the morning and go, how can I get my... I mean, I don't, I don't think about that. I, to my detriment, sure, in terms of careers. I'm, I don't think of, I think about how can I get better at that? Oh, do I need to change the key in that track? And how can I get better at this thing? And if I take a walk, will that get my... I think about the art and the art and the art and the art. And it's one of the things why, you know, why someone like you is such a great friend because I... I'm not geared for it. And the really interesting artist, to my mind, whatever, but isn't going to be geared for that. I mean, like Jennifer Hudson's a great singer. She is terrific. But I've never been really interested in anything. Kelly Clarkson's done some interesting things. Uh, Carrie Underwood, beautiful woman, like country's not my jam, but it's like, I've never heard anything she's done that I, where I thought like, I mean, some nice melodies, but there's nothing... There's no gravitas there. And it's like, for me, the really interesting artists, just right or wrong, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, they don't have a Brian Epstein, okay. But it's like, there's just not, I don't think about that over the course of the day. You don't. Right. You don't. But the the young artist in Claremore, Oklahoma, who doesn't have a shot at maybe getting out of Oklahoma, that's their... That is there. Think thing. about the great rock bands you love. Think about like, from, okay, really like a little dangerous, a little fu attitude. They're not going to do that shit. It's beneath uh, them. Okay, but that's not what that show's about, right? It's, and we're it, saying it, the same thing. It's not a rock. Uh, All right. Yes, they did. Um, David, I forget his name, but it was ten years ago. David Cook. He was kind of edgy. He at least had dark hair and sang rye. He wasn't, you know. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Anything no. else you want to move on the from this? The cure is not going to come out of American Idol. This is what I'm but saying. But you made a blanket statement about, you know, and I just wanted to protect all those young individuals out there because I think there's a lot of gravitas in that line. And yes, there's a lot. Look, any, there's, any a lot way, of, there's a lot of vanity, too. Any, any way any, anybody wants to get their stuff heard, I'm not mad at them. But I, I forget what it was that prompted. But for me personally, when I see that, to me, that doesn't look like something that a, a really bold and interesting artist would be interested in doing. I understand. It's, I understand why, why, how you're saying that now. I just disagree. Cool. Right. Is there, um, what else would you like for people to know about you or L- anything? Literally nothing. Oh, come I on. Literally. Do you want to hand out any socials? Uh, I mean, you can find me on Twitter under my name <laughs> if you want. Are you are you in a current Twitter battle? Yeah, I know you are. Yeah, what is it? Well, there's a lot of anti-Semitism where okay, it's like, people, right. yeah, people have these little JPEGs and like, look how many Jews work at CBS. Like, yeah, Hampton is Jewish, by the way. Yeah, and then uh, the other one would be people who um, can we just do five minutes on your Twitter wars? Sure, whatever you want. <laughs> okay, so, ask me a question. So give me, can we? Let's do. Give me a couple of minutes on one of your Twitter wars. Well, I don't want to say Twitter wars, but yeah, what would you like to know? I just generally speaking, I know that you dive into some, you hang out for a while, you go for a few days sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I and like you like the discourse. I do like the discourse. Going back I mean, to I, you like to form good sentences. I like to dive into the most controversial topics I can. I mean, this is where a lot of our public discourse is happening. And so it's me and then, you know, Anonymous Bob 363 with 14 different, you know, American flags and thumbs up, whatever those guys are. 
Uh, and I say, well, why do you think that? And I kind of have a passive aggressive style. You know, it's like, uh-huh, well, I, I hear what you're saying, but here's why I disagree. And and it's uh, just a way I like to spend my day. But it becomes, you know, especially during the pandemic when you're super isolated and I wasn't having normal conversations with human beings in front of me, that becomes your world. So it's like, yeah, 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 this thing in front of me, that's great. But what's really interesting is this, you know, space conversation I'm having with an anonymous stranger. But, you know, like with the anti-Semitism, for example, it's like, look, I'm, I, I don't think let's ignore this and it'll go away is going to work. And I think that people need to say, no, that's wrong. What you're saying is wrong. Here's why what you're saying is stupid. And I would hope that people that aren't Jews would also jump in and say, no, this is not just, oh, that, oh, that crazy Kanye, he's mentally ill. Yeah, well, the people who believe him aren't all mentally ill, and I don't care whether he's mentally ill. And I, you know, I think it's really important that people push back. This is unacceptable. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. That's not the experience. And so, you know, the the arguments. And frankly, since you since you ask, but like frankly, I'm pretty good at it at making these arguments, and. They're pretty easily debunked if you just take the time. If, you, if someone says something anti-Semitic and you go, you're an anti-Semite, you haven't done anything. You've called them a name. That's probably a, they're probably a 17-year-old gamer kid who, you know, an incel who wants attention and this is how they get it online. Is they say outrageous crap. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous. But if you just call them names, you haven't done anything. You're, you're, you're fighting with them. If you actually refute what they're saying, here's why that's ridiculous. You're accomplishing something. There's one, for example, they say, there's different numbers, but they say, you know, well, Jews have been kicked out of 109 countries. Well, first of all, wrong. And some of it is like, it's mostly like European and Near Eastern states where they, <laughs> like, Jews were expelled from Spain, for instance. That's not something to brag about. But it's very strange when you say this. They say this, and you go, As a brother, do you think that persecution of ethnic or religious minorities is unusual in the world? Because <laughs> I got news for you. <laughs> it's not, there's, there's a genocide going on right now in China. There is. Is it fair to say that some of your Twitter deep dives are an opportunity for Hampton to use his words? Which words? All of your words. Oh, that's absolutely fair to say. Less yeah. about less about the debate, no matter the subject, whether it's politics or Britney Spears, it's a chance for you to form sentences. Oh, sure. Words. Sure, absolutely. And let's it, take the anti-Semitism out of it. And absolutely. No, I, politics, and let's just... Oh, yeah. No, I'm perfectly happy to... Well, I'm happier to have a conversation that isn't about a fraught political issue. But, I mean, like... But uh, you're using... These are chances for... These are opportunities for you to... Construct... Word, wordsmith. Construct sentences. And think... Yeah, think, which is really what it's about. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things you're getting now is uh, the Dodgers and the Mets got booted out of the playoffs early. And so people are mad. Baseball people are mad. The playoffs have to be fixed. It's like, yeah, unpredictability in sports is terrible. Let's fix this whole March Madness thing. So so only the favorites win. That's what people want. It's like, what are you talking <laughs> And I'm perfectly happy to make that argument, too. Like that's in fact happier. I mean, I mean, it doesn't. I don't. It doesn't feel good to discuss. You know, to have people spew anti-Semitic rage at you. No, I know. Yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, but right. I can imagine. Right. I don't. That's You're sympathizing or empathizing. Right. That's not something I, I, do necessarily for enjoyment. But the, to your point, sure. 
yeah, that's it's there's absolutely uh, different. You know, whether it's you know you can go from abortion to farm policy to you know to, movie the, review. to the baseball schedule. Yeah, to why you didn't like this movie or whatever. Hundred percent. Yeah. No, it's. I mean, I think that's okay. why people um, enjoy those kinds of exchanges anyway. But it's. I know that's why you enjoy them. <laughs> It's what I do enjoy about them. <laughs> there are other aspects that are not enjoyable. But yeah, sure. And I mean, I'm pretty good at it. So the best one is when you just go, it's just my favorite. It's like somebody just disagrees with whatever it is. You go, okay, well, take care. I'm going to move on now. You have a great day. <laughs> because they can't really, you can't really object to someone like, oh, you're certainly entitled to your feelings. But I'm going to go. I had one the other day. I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to. It was with a Chiefs-Bills game. It's like, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to go watch a football game now. Enjoy. Well, well you, your bread and circus is distracting you from the real. I'm like, no, you sound. No, that sounds like a lot of fun. What you're doing sounds like way more fun than watching this game. I think we need to do a part two where we come back and we talk about um, the rest of your careers and history and life. And whatever. Yeah, sure, man. Do you have anything else you want to say or talk about? No. No? Well, I, I okay. uh, moved into a new place. It's true. Yeah. No, I don't want to talk about that. All right. <laughs> well, I'm glad you came by. I'm really excited for uh, to singing. I'm, gonna, uh, I'm really excited to go home, and that's really what I want to talk about is music and tracks and singing and all that kind of stuff. just thrills me to pieces. Does this um, talking for an hour and a half this morning or this t- today kill your practice session? I hope not. <laughs> not that, not the time that. Ooh, sorry, microphone. Your not instrument. The, yeah, the strain on the voice. It's really funny how how prima donna esque you really do get because it really is that kind of fragile, like where it's like, you know, the dog did something they shouldn't have, and I yelled at the dog. It's like, well, I'm screwed for today. <laughs> is it that quick? Yeah, like my mortal fear is like I, before a gig that I'll be like, you know, like <laughs> I like hey, you know, yell at somebody in traffic, you jerk, and it's like, well, nope, sorry, I can't perform it. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> Give me my tea with honey and lemon and let me sit in a room for an hour. (laughs) All right, man. Well, it's good seeing you. Thank you you so much. It was a joy. Shake your hand. Let's get out. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Little Agency That Roars podcast. Be sure to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on FasoniPartners.com under podcast. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to like and leave a review. If you want to submit an interview or submit yourself for an interview, please email roar at fasonipartners.com. That's R-O-A-R at fasonipartners.com. Thanks.